This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Yusim. We're on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, my friend and my co-host, of course. Uh, she's the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School. And we, of course, are at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you can reach us several through several media, so to speak. Uh, we're at SXM Business on Twitter. You can get us, uh, well, you are listening to us on channel 132. You can reach us by email as well. Uh, we have a, a really interesting guest uh, who's gonna come on in just a few minutes, but before I introduce her, we are gonna take uh, just a minute here, Anne, you and me, to kind of take stock of leadership in action in the world we're in. So it's been a slow news week, I know, but if you can pick out something that comes to mind that touches on leadership or people ought to be thinking about as they think about their own leadership. Uh, what would you focus on? Well, Mike, I know our guest is uh, Chief Sustainability Officer. So in light of our guest, I've been thinking about the tension that's playing out between health and wealth. <laughs> and on the one hand, uh, voters who have stayed at home sent mail-in ballots, cautious in the pandemic, and voters who have gone to the polls. And I just, I am thinking about how that tension plays out in our, in our electoral process. And it's been, you know, yeah. by report, mainly Democrats who have been concerned about the pandemic and have sent in mail-in ballots, and by and large Republicans who have gone to the polls in person. So I just, I thought that tension and that value, those values are interesting to see played out in our behavior. And good point. And I'm gonna add a, a different point just to get it into the conversation and it will get in. We've been, like everybody else, we've been thinking about politics almost nonstop now, uh, certainly since Tuesday. And well, the conversation or the concerns have been above all for good reason, on the political process that democratic institutions were part of, the implications for business are enormous as we come out of this election and we see how the Senate and the House line up, not to mention the White House. And we'll probably talk about that a bit, not politically, but just in terms of the implications of this particular exercise and our democratic values as they impinge on companies like Walmart, which is where we're going now. I want to bring on, uh, bring into our conversation, bring onto the show, uh, Kathleen McLaughlin. Kathleen, great to have you here with us today. Oh, well, thanks. It's great to be with you both. So Kathleen, just to let our listeners know what you're bringing to the table today, you're Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer for Walmart and President of the Walmart Foundation. And just to add a, a sentence here on the scope and scale of what you do, uh, as I think almost all of our listeners will know, Walmart is the largest retailer by far in the world. Last time I looked, uh, over 2 million employees, over 11,000 
stores, of course, many in the US, but you're a very global company as well. And you affect the world and the world affects you. So Kathleen, I'm gonna get us going with a, kind of maybe just an obvious question to bring your title to life. The Chief Sustainability Officer I think I know what that means, but why don't you help our listeners appreciate what it means to be the chief sustainability officer for the world's largest private employer? Well, you know, it's uh, it really goes to the reason that I joined Walmart, which is, um, you know, the opportunity I have every day is to work with colleagues across the company uh, and to work with partners externally to figure out what sits at the intersection of business and society. What are those issues that are most relevant for our associates, our customers, communities, where we live and work, suppliers, you know, and, and what issues are relevant for us as a company? Where do we have assets that we could bring to bear to address those issues in a way that uses those assets and makes us a stronger business and also at the same time accelerates progress on those issues. So I get to do that every day. The real work is done by the 2 million associates and all of our external partners, but my team helps support that and uh, you know, work with folks and, and tries to, to accelerate progress. So Kathleen, you're kind of at the center of the intersection of business and society. <clears throat> right. In light of what you've said, and I'm gonna now allude in particular to the fact that uh, your chief executive, Doug McMillan, has been serving, I believe, as the head of the Business Roundtable, a private association of about 200 chief executive officers. And some listeners will know, but probably many won't know, that about a little over a year ago, the Business Roundtable issued a very important statement, uh, a fundamental pivot from the way business is thought about business as primarily shareholder focus, pushing companies now in a different direction or an expanded direction to think about not only shareholders, but other stakeholders as well. So picking up on that, Kathleen, here's my question from that. I know you've, uh, you've worked with Doug McMillan, the, the chief executive uh, directly and frequently. And I, my guess is you've been part of the business roundtable uh, work he's been doing as well. Uh, if you could explain why Walmart did sign that statement that came out last a year ago, August, pressing companies to become uh, fully stakeholder focused, not just shareholder focused. So yeah. help us understand why the company's gone in that direction. And then I'll ask you a couple more questions. We were excited to help shape that and, uh, and share that. You know, and it really goes to what is the purpose of a company? I mean, the purpose of a company is to create wealth for society. And of course, that includes paying people back for the money that they lent you. That's what shareholders are. They're people who lend money to a business to use. Uh, and, and you know, a lot of those shareholders include people like all of us who have retirement funds or you know, pensions or what have you. Uh, and yeah, you need to earn a return on that, on that money. But that statement reflects the fact that really ultimately to be able to make that return consistently over time. You have to be performing well as a business. You have to be serving the needs of the customers, certainly, but also your employees, your suppliers, the communities where you operate. And that uh, certainly in the long term, if you want to sustain 
value creation for those shareholders. The only way to do it is by creating value for all stakeholders. Uh, so it's really a recognition of that. And, you know, it, re it reminds me of when I first got out of college, out of university, my first job was with McKinsey. And I did not have a business degree. You know, I, I, this was in the days when McKinsey really did not hire people who didn't have business degrees. So they sent all of us who didn't have business degrees off to a crash course. They called it the mini MBA. And I spent a month locked in a room learning how to calculate net present value, you know, shareholder value. And that was really the main thing we learned, right? What's discounted cash flow, cost of capital, you know, what do you need to do to return that? And um, I think, you know, at that time, and this will maybe date me, you know, this is in the 90s. In those days, there was quite, I would say, an over-rotated focus on shareholder value as narrowly defined as the output of that discounted cash flow model. And um, you know, to me, it all comes down to what assumptions are you making and putting into that model? So if you're being pretty myopic and you're thinking about your profit and loss statement and you think, oh, great, you know, great way I could enhance shareholder value, I'm just gonna cut costs because then I have a bigger margin and then my that present value will go up. Well, maybe on paper, but in real life, <laughs> actually it doesn't work that way. You know, you've got trade-offs, you've got to serve the customer, you need to engage your employees, keep them excited, keep them motivated, you know, you need to serve your communities, you need to have a good reputation. Um, and all of those things end up affecting every single number that you've got in that discounted cash flow model. And that's really what that statement recognizes, that ultimately to create wealth for uh, anyone, you have to create wealth for the others. Kathleen, thank you for walking us through this. Let me bring Anne in at this point. Anne, over to you. Thank you, Mike. Kathleen, a real pleasure to have an opportunity to speak with you. And since you mentioned your undergraduate um, experience, am I right in remembering that you went to Boston University? Is that right? Yes, I did. College and of Engineering. Ah, College of Engineering, Boston yep. University. All right, very good. And your first job was at McKinsey. And I'm just curious, uh, what, what were you an analyst at McKinsey? What kind of work did you do? No, so I was an associate. So, uh, so yes, I, I had my engineering degree from Boston and then I went off to Oxford and I got another degree in economics and politics. And uh, I actually stayed on for another year and I got a diploma in theology. So I had a fairly eclectic academic background, but, but no, you know, as I said, no real business experience. I had interned at IBM actually for a number of summers, you know, doing various kind of roles, but, but that was sort of it. So in those days, um, McKinsey did hire people with that kind of background as associates uh, and not as business analysts, but they did put us through this crash course and to at least understand the basics. And then it was a longer apprenticeship in the early years of the McKinsey career. And I'm just curious, you know, when we go forward in life, <laughs> we're just not quite sure what is around the bend. But when we look back in retrospect, we can often just pull a straight line and understand why this decision led to that decision. It all makes sense. When you look back, mm -hmm. what is the through thread from engineering to theology to McKinsey to chief sustainability officer? You know, from the time I was a little kid, uh, and I think it was really informed by my parents, my family, uh, just the ethos of our family, but also I went to school at a Catholic school and was taught by nuns who were very 
mission oriented. They worked in uh, Guatemala in the summers when they weren't teaching us, they were down in Guatemala doing economic development. And, you know, I grew up in the, in the seventies, um, real social justice movement was burgeoning. And that's kind of, you know, what I was taught from a very young age is that we're all here on this planet as children of God, and we're meant to enjoy life, love people and, you know, build a better, better world. So that was really what has driven me ever since I was a little kid. And so, yeah, I went off to do engineering thinking that I wanted to really learn about technology. I was going to go work in economic development in Africa. And my focus was going to be appropriate technology. You know, that was the big kind of buzzword in the eighties. And that's what I was going to do. Um, and then along the way, I, um, thought, well, you know, I better learn a little bit more about economics and politics. So I can be more effective if I'm going to do economic development. I need to, to learn about that. And the whole reason I went to Oxford was so that I could do another degree in, in those disciplines in a short amount of time, because mm -hmm. I could do it in a couple of years, you know, second, second bachelor's at that time. Um, but I always had in mind that I really wanted to work in development. And then one day I went along with a friend who was interested in joining McKinsey. I'd never heard of McKinsey. I went along with, with them really as a, a friend to this presentation at Oxford. And the people were talking about the role of business in society and how can business accelerate development in a very practical way uh, and complement development work and you know what, what governments can do in civil society and so on. And I was really captivated by that. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go, I'll do that for a couple of years. And um, it was a big risk because I had actually applied for and been accepted in a doctorate program in economics at Harvard. And I was all set to go. I was going to go do that. I get my PhD, work at the World Bank, you know, that was going to be my path. But this other opportunity presented itself and there was something about it that, that really spoke to me to the extent that I, you know, I did that. And I joined McKinsey and I started working. And uh, I, I always felt for many years there that I was learning a lot, learning how to become a leader, and I was having impact and making a difference, you know, through business in, in lots of different ways. And, you know, I stayed there for 23 years. Great. Kathleen, I'm going to break in for just a second to remind listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And our guest today is Kathleen McLaughlin, Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer for Walmart. And Kathleen, to pick up on your really interesting career path with a few twists and turns to it, I think we've all had something comparable in our backgrounds as well. Uh, you now have a very big responsibility in that I think you are responsible for Walmart's contribution of over a billion dollars a year in food and products and in cash. Famously, for example, in the wake of Katrina in New Orleans, Walmart uh, played a critical role in the city's recovery when re um, public services were, were largely shut down. So Walmart has had a long history of actively helping people get through, in this case, a very rough period um, in the wake of Katrina, but well beyond that. To connect that with uh, the business roundtable statement about the need to be focused on many shareholders, not just stockholders, could you just talk through the philosophy of your corporate giving program, uh, which of course includes cash, but also products? 
Absolutely. So yeah, the corporate giving, it does come to about one and a half billion a year, which is roughly um, 400 to 500 million in cash grants. And then the balance is in kind giving, mostly food. So unsold food out of our stores or DCs that otherwise would have been food waste, but we can get it to people. And that philanthropy does play uh, an important role, but it, it simply complements what we do through our business, which is really where we're having the most impact on social and environmental issues. And so we uh, develop our philanthropic programs, uh, our strategies to really extend uh, the social impact of what we can achieve through business. So a lot of times people will hear one and a half billion and think, wow, that's a lot of money. And it is. But think about it, you know, the, the retail company um, is 500 billion and over 2 million people, right? So if you start from that point of view and say, again, what's the role right. of business? It's really about making a difference on those issues that matter most to customers and, and associates and, and suppliers and communities and so on. So for us, there are a few key priorities. There's economic opportunity that can be provided to people through work, through workforce development, through jobs. And that's something that we work on through our own business, our own jobs for our associates. And our focus in particular is on entry-level people coming into work and helping them build the skills that they need and get access to career paths to advance. So it's about developing people through work uh, and training and education and job experience and so on. And so then our philanthropy, we have a complementary program in that same field where we seek to broaden that and, and work with other retailers and other um, folks who are focused on future of work and incumbent worker upskilling and so on and really trying to change the way the workforce development system functions so that people can um, have uh, better economic mobility. Second big priority, transforming the world's supply chains, you know, especially in food systems, but in any kind of category, you know, apparel, electronics, and so on. And so if you take any category, let's say seafood or produce or, you know, cotton apparel, what are all the social and environmental issues along that chain? And how can we, through retail sourcing, through improvements, through transforming the way products get produced right back to farm, fisheries, uh, all the way through to how they get consumed by customers. How can we transform the way those supply chains function to address climate change, natural ecosystems, waste, human rights, economic opportunity for people working in supply chains, you know, uh, food safety, chemicals, and so on. And so we do a lot of that work right through business uh, in partnership with suppliers and environmental nonprofit groups and, and human rights organizations and so on, right through the supply chains. And then again, through philanthropy, we can extend that work. We can invest in things that might not make sense for a business to do, but are very critical, like transparency tools or what have you. And then similarly, you mentioned disaster relief. Um, you know, our work in communities, we're present, we're physically present in about 10,000 places. So yes, we are typically on the scene when something happens because we live and work there too, right? So if it's a hurricane or a tornado or, or what have you, we can be there through our stores, our associates, our supply chains and provide, um, you know, a form of aid, if you want to think of it that way in the first instance, where we, we can be there for immediate relief and recovery. We partner with the Red Cross and many other people. And then the philanthropy helps us complement that, you know, as well. So those are some examples, but we, we really begin with, with asking the question, what's the relevant issue that we can address through our business assets, just as a way of operating our business, our products, our services, our jobs, our supply chain, 
And then how do we complement through philanthropy? And why don't you jump in? Very good. Well, Kathleen, so impressive. I'm wondering if you can uh, give us a concrete example. For example, you do uh, development through work and then complement that with philanthropy. Can you give an example that our listeners might really be able to visualize and appreciate? Yeah, so you know, one of the biggest challenges we face in America right now is creating paths to prosperity for people, especially people who, for whatever reason, might not have been able to go to college or build you know, certain skills that would be a good fit with high demand jobs and so on. And I think especially with technology and innovation and so on, and we, we know that that's going to change the nature of work, there is a greater need to help people build skills, whatever their starting point. And so for a retailer like us, where we have a very large number of entry level roles, we can play a particular role helping people get into work so, you know, we have one and a half million associates in the U.S. alone. So we can provide a point of access to good jobs across the country. And then we can work with people in those roles to help them develop the experiences and the skills that they would need to advance, whether that's at Walmart or somewhere else. So through our business, we've invested substantially in wages and benefits uh, and job design and so on to help people thrive and stay in the role that they've got long enough to learn the skills that they need to move up. And we've invested in something we call the Walmart Academy. Uh, it's you know 200 physical locations across the country and then um, digital learning in every store. And, and each of those physical locations is within about a one hour drive of a store where we can provide specialized training and soft skills, technical skills, and so on that are needed to move to that next job of produce manager or electronic supervisor or you know, pharmacy tech, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and so we help people earn while they learn and learn while they earn and then move up. And then what we've done through philanthropy is to work with other retailers, with um, academic institutions, training providers, you know, technology uh, startups that are doing things like, you know, training people in Kentucky to learn how to code from their bedrooms, and then they have, they can be a job, you know, they can have a job as a computer programmer, as an example. And, and the philanthropic work is focused on three things. Number one, helping people understand that there is a business case to invest in entry-level people, that it makes sense to develop their capabilities and to help connect career paths and so on. And, you know, we've done work with folks like Harvard um, and FSG and so on to build out that case, um, worked with National Association of Workforce Boards and, and many others. And, you know, I'd say over the last five years, people have a much deeper understanding of that as an opportunity than ever before. And I think we've been assisted by all of the focus on future of work and things like that. The second big focus of the philanthropy has been innovating uh, approaches to the training and advancement of incumbent workers. So all the ways we can use technology, VR, you know, two-minute learning on a cell phone, the job experience itself, the coaching, the navigational supports, there's just so much innovation going on. You know, the entire California community college system is transforming to serve the incumbent worker more. It's not just taking people who have been out of work and putting them into work, but helping people navigate even once they're in work to the next you know, sort of role. So a lot of innovation going on there and we've been investing in that um, innovation and piloting and scaling and related to that badging and credentialing. You know, mm -hmm. How can people show that they have a skill? 
you know, let's move away from falling back on two-year degrees or four-year degrees somehow as evidence that someone has skill. There are a lot of other ways to demonstrate capability. And how do we pe- how do we help people get the credit for the capabilities they have, even if they just learned it simply through work? Mm-hmm. And then the third area has been on improving collaboration between employers and education and training providers um, to, to basically break down that mismatch between the jobs that are available and the, the skills that are needed and so on, and then what people are being taught and developed to do, and to create a much better functioning workforce development market where the worker, you know, the learner is in control and can see, oh, okay, here's my next opportunity. Here's what I would need to learn to do that. And when they reach out to an employer or to a training provider, everyone's speaking a common language and you know, a lot of folks are, are, are looking at things even like universal learning records, you know, that a worker can take with them. We would carry this with us our whole lives that would have everything we've learned and known. And I could go to an employer and they'll know what that means. It means something. So it's a good example of where, you know, we're, we're putting that all into motion through our, through our jobs and then complementing it, complementing it through philanthropy. And of course, the other dimension of this is, is around um, inclusive paths for people. So for women, for the Black and African-American community, for for people of color in general, um, these career paths are really important paths up. And that's been a real focus of ours uh, in terms of accelerating advancement of women and accelerating advancement of people of color. We just decided to start releasing our statistics about representation at Walmart at a really granular level, Uh, not once a year, but now twice a year because it keeps us focused on, are we making progress? Are we going fast enough? What can we do? And so much of the research we funded has been about identifying unique barriers to advancement for women or people of color, and then gearing our own company programs to get at those barriers. And then also through our philanthropic work with others in the workforce ecosystem, you know, sharing those best practices and helping people adopt different approaches more quickly. Uh, all companies, and maybe above all Walmart, by virtue of its extraordinary scale, have spent a lot of time thinking about how to respond to uh, the coronavirus in broad terms, how it's affecting sales, employee health, and well beyond. If you could offer a couple of words or a couple of themes that define how Walmart has been responding to COVID-19, and also what you see your company doing in the next 12 to 24 months, Assuming, as the numbers seem to say, that it's going to be with us as a huge public health problem until we have some kind of a vaccine widely available. So, Kathleen, over to you. Yeah, you know, it's uh, what a challenge. Um, you know, I, I, it's affected us uh, as a society, I would say, at a couple different levels. So, first, let's just talk about communities and day to day life. So, you know, for us at Walmart, the main thing has been, can we operate safely? Can we operate, you know, safely for our associates? And certainly in the first number of months, uh, you know, as we were learning more about the virus and what needs to happen to to protect people and so on, you know, we're learning along with everybody else. And so um, that uh, has been the first concern out of the gate. So you saw us doing a bunch of things like putting up the plexiglass and changing our operating hours. You know, a lot of places we used to be open 24 hours. We, we closed that down and just said, look, it's going to be during the day because we needed that time at night to clean. And mm-hmm. we put in all the markers the way everybody else did about you go in the store, you come out that door, you go one way down these aisles. 
you know, all the cleaning and the sanitizing, all of those kind of things, the PPE, the masks and so on. So really in the first instance, um, that was the concern. And we wanted to also consider what families, you know, our associates, their families might be dealing with and provide more flexibility for people to even decide, do they want to come to work or do they want to stay home? They, maybe they had a sick child or who knows. So we also um, altered our leave policy around, you know, the notification you may or may not have to give if you're just not going to show up for work tomorrow and just said, look, we get it. If you can't come into work tomorrow, just let us know, you know, ideally, but, you know, do that. Um, and providing paid time off for people who felt that they needed to quarantine uh, whether they just felt that themselves or the doctor told them to or somebody was sick at home or what have you and not have people feel pressure that they needed to come to work because we didn't want to have folks thinking, well, I got to come in. Um, we hired hundreds of thousands of additional workers to put slack in the system and you know, also make it make people feel that, listen, I can't go into the deli today. I don't need to worry because Joe's going to be there. You know, I don't, I'm not the only person that's going to be there. So all those kind of things, uh, first and foremost, uh, have been the concern. Then, you know, secondly, it goes to then, well, can we continue to serve the customer uh, at a time when the needs are greater than ever? And so what's been interesting is the pandemic forced us to accelerate work that we had underway in any case to do things like grocery pickup, you know, and expand that as a service to more and more stores or delivery of food to people's homes. These are all things that we had on our roadmap, you know, as an omni-channel retailer, we were in the process of expanding all that anyway, but I'd say, I'd say we really accelerated it um, because we needed to, people needed that service. People didn't, you know, some people didn't mind coming into the stores, but a lot of people did not want to do that. They wanted to pull up in their car and have someone just come and plop the groceries in the back and off they go. So that's, uh, that's been a big thing. And, um, and then in terms of communities, uh, you know, writ large, We've tried to do a few things. One, you know, be responsive and be helpful around things like testing. You know, so someday if we get a vaccine, you know, can we be helpful distributing that and so on? It's been it's been a little challenging, just you know, figuring out how to partner um, with with government because that's really what it what it takes to do that. But that's something we've tried to to be helpful on. And then uh, just community organizations writ large. You know, in the in the foundation, there are a number of organizations that are nonprofit organizations that play critical roles in providing food security. You know, food banks in the Feeding America network, many others, uh, and they have been extremely challenged in this time of the pandemic because, like all the rest of us, you know, physical working is is challenging, and 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 they've got their own concerns with volunteers. Can they actually show up and help, and so on, and their own staff. But then there's been such volatility in food supplies and demand, and then an unprecedented need for services because of the spike in unemployment and the and the challenges in communities. Terrific. So we we you know in in the first instance provided incremental uh, grants and assistance to folks more on an emergency basis, and then we've been working pretty steadily with our grantees to redirect, you know, pretty much to a grantee, the money we had given for other reasons just to help them stay afloat and kind of operate and do what they need to do, you know, in, in this time. So there's been a lot of, of work on that. And then of course our suppliers, you know, suppliers uh, have had a lot of challenges. They want to stay in business. They want to still um, be able to retain their own employees. And to do that, they have to be able to sell their products. So we've worked um, hard to, 
basically stay open in our stores and online and still provide a, a channel for companies to reach customers um, you know, with, with their products. And we did some things around looking at our payment terms and you know, trying to help people access capital and so on just to get through the hump. Um, so it's, it's been a, a real challenge. And as you say, you know, looks like it's gonna go on for a while. Yep, yep. you've been busy. And let me pass the baton on to you. Kathleen, given, given uh, what we have gone through so far, what you have gone through so far at Walmart, looking back, what would you do the same or differently? What, what have you learned through the experience? Of the COVID through the pandemic, yes, yes, exactly. Oh. Um, and maybe it's too soon to say because we're not through to the other side, but I'm just curious, even as you look back to the beginning days, is there something that you would do the same or differently? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know, you know, it's hard. I wish, I wish we had a crystal ball. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I know for, for myself personally, when this all started, um, I thought, oh, well, you know, gosh, I wonder if it's going to affect us over here in North America. And then it became clear it was going to affect us. And I, in my mind, I thought, oh, okay, so this will be a couple of weeks. You know, we might have to be on lockdown for a couple of weeks. I had no idea it was going to turn into this. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So I don't know. Hindsight's 2020. Um, I think it's too, I think it's too hard to say what we mm -hmm. would have done differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mike, we should ask ourselves that question. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, right? It's a, yeah, it's a really good question. And this is why we do after action reviews. We look yeah. back to see better mm -hmm. what's forward. I think the problem we're all having is that there's such uncertainty mm -hmm. about what's happening and what will be happening. It's hard to draw strong lessons from the past because we, we got more challenges coming that may require different moves, different mindsets, uh, different kinds of actions. Mm -hmm. How about uh, this? May I, may I chime in with another question? Yes, Since please, that, one, that one was a little tough for all of us. How about Kathleen, uh, if you could just help me understand the relationship between the foundation and Walmart, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, so um, the foundation has programs that focus on the same social and environmental or, or societal issues that Walmart's tackling. So for example, economic opportunity for entry-level workers, mm -hmm. you know, upskilling of incumbent workers, helping people advance more quickly, or um, transforming the world's supply chains for social and environmental sustainability. So for example, forced labor in seafood in Southeast Asia, or climate change, mm. right? Accelerating climate action. Um, in terms of community issues, you know, disaster relief. So each of these um, issues, the way that we work it is we say, well, what's the social outcome, the environmental outcome, the gap that, that or the opportunity that needs to be addressed. So for example, climate, we gotta bend this curve, right? We gotta get to zero yeah, emissions. Absolutely. I mean, certainly in line with the Paris Agreement, but that means some of us have to get to zero, right? Like it's it's a, so that's, you know, the outcome. Or forced labor in Southeast Asia, well, that, that would be nice to eradicate that, right? That's what we gotta do. Yeah, right. um, economic development, we'd like to see more advancement. You know, in Walmart, we, you know, 75% of our store managers started as hourly people. Okay, great but it doesn't mean 75% of entry-level hourlies become store managers. But so what would that look like, right? If, if you could do that. So, so what's the outcome for society 
that um, you know we're being asked to help be part of the solution on. And then what we do is we say, okay, so why is that gap in place? What elements of the system need to get addressed? It might be policies, it might be practices as you know in business or elsewhere, it might be networks or resource flows, it might be power dynamics, it might be mindsets and narratives that we tell ourselves in society. It could be any of those elements of the system that are holding the outcomes that people don't like in place. So we interrogate that and say, all right, well, what would need to be transformed in the system to get a better outcome? And um, obviously that you know, typically involves lots of actors. It involves government, it involves business, it involves civil society. But understanding that we then say, okay, so given Walmart, given who we are, the assets that we have to bear, we can bring to bear our products, our services, our jobs, our physical presence, our physical infrastructure, our philanthropy. These are all assets that we could bring to bear. What could we deploy against those bottlenecks in the system that would really unlock movement? And so our business takes a number of actions to do that. And what we're trying to do there is do that in a way that really accelerates progress on that societal issue, but it also makes sense for business. And that's that virtuous circle, right? That's what we were talking about, shared value, you know, purpose of a corporation, right? To, to serve society. The philanthropy helps us go faster because we can use that to target something that kind of doesn't make sense for the business to do, but wow, it could really unlock, you know, movement. And, and you know, I, I can give you a couple examples. Um, you know, if you look at climate, for example, through our business, we have set a target to be zero emissions by 2040 in our own operations, right? And that includes our long haul fleet and our running the stores and the refrigeration equipment, all that zero emissions by 2040. And a lot of that's renewable energy. We do pretty large scale power purchase agreements where we're um, adding net renewable capacity to the grid in America. I think it's about 1.2 gigawatts we've added just through our own contracts and procurement and so on. Um, so that's all business. And you know what? It's great for our business. We're more energy efficient. You know, it's, it's better for cost in the, in the long term, everything else. But then what we said is, okay, so through philanthropy, um, you know, what could we do? And so we've made investments, you know, for example, one of the big drivers of, um, of, of climate um, change is agriculture. So we've done a number of things through philanthropy um, that really help, for example, Global Forest Watch. Um, we made a grant we, that was used by WRI and some others to create this tool that can be used for companies if they're dealing or sourcing to make sure that when they're buying some products, they're not coming from recently deforested lands. So that's a kind of traceability and a monitoring tool that you, know, you can achieve through philanthropy and that's good for the whole system. Um, we launched a program called Project Gigaton with our suppliers, where we've targeted taking out a billion metric tons of emissions by 2030 through global supply chains. Uh, we now have 2,300 suppliers who've been working on concrete initiatives to do that. It's about 230 million metric tons reported of emissions avoided toward the billions, about a quarter of the way to, to the goal. And there are projects in um, energy, packaging, product design, you know, waste reduction, um, uh, sustainable agriculture, deforestation, a lot of that's through business. But again, philanthropy could come alongside and say, you know what, we can fund World Wildlife Fund to go figure out what are the drivers of food waste on farmers fields upstream. And if we understand what crops and why it happens, then that's insight the whole world can use to get at that food waste issue upstream. 
And okay. meanwhile, in our business, we can make sure we relax our specs when we're going off and buying food. So all that ugly produce isn't sitting there on the field, but it's actually going into the pasta sauce or, you know, we're actually purchasing it and selling it. So, so these are all tools in the toolkit. There's business tools, there's philanthropic tools, and we use them based on the job at hand to kind of get at those parts of the system that can be unstuck to get the better outcome for society. Mike, I know you're going to do a reset, but if I could just chime in. So really, Kathleen, you wear two hats. You are on the business side as the chief sustainability officer, and you're on the philanthropic side (laughs) as the president of the foundation. So it's not as though Walmart is doing all this noble work off to the side separate from the business. No, it is integrated with the business strategy. Uh, yes, in terms of tackling the same societal issues. One thing I want to make extremely clear is that we're not using the philanthropy for business goals, right? No, the philanthropy of course. is right. The philanthropy is complementing the business initiatives to accelerate progress on that societal goal. Yes. And yes, yes. it's very coordinated from that perspective because we're trying to transform the whole system so that it is more sustainable, right? Like for us, it's always a, a cloverleaf of social, environmental, economic sustainability, right? So, so that's the goal is we, we, we as a society need solutions. We need to live in harmony with nature. We need to create opportunities for people in ways that create prosperity for everyone. And yeah, the social justice aspect is about equity for all. The environmental aspect is to make sure we're doing this in harmony with nature and the planetary boundaries. And then, yeah, the economic aspect is we need a little engine of growth here, right? We need that prosperity and you need all three of those to be in harmony. And that, that's what we're always trying to do. Thank all right, you. Kathleen, Thank I need you. to remind listeners, a uh, very brief uh, commentary here that this is Leadership in Action. I think you know that already. Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Mike Yusim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and our guest has been Kathleen McLaughlin, Executive VP and Chief Sustainability Officer for Walmart. And Kathleen, close to the end now, I've got two final questions here to pull our our thinking together. Uh, The first is a long argument that goes back decades in American business, um, probably most clearly articulated by the uh, economist Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winning economist, passed away some years ago, but served for many years at the University of Chicago, who made a very vigorous argument, you know it well, that business should stick to the business of doing business. It's what, it's what you know best. There's a counter argument, of course, and I think you've accepted the counter argument. So for those that would uh, invoke uh, Milton Friedman and his argument that business of business is business and not philanthropy and not community service, what, what's your response on that? So um, I, th- I, th- I think that um, there's a misunderstanding about how can you create value as a business? Um, what does it take? And I don't know if there ever was a time when you could say, oh, well, business to business, I'm going to create value and I'm not going to worry about anything else that you know the customers might think or, or employees, associates, you know, suppliers, government, it doesn't matter. Yep. I don't know if there ever was a time that that was true. I think now, especially, um, you know, the world has shrunk, if you want to think of it that way. <laughs> and um, you can't separate social, environmental, and economic issues on our planet, right? We're now at the point where um, we've exceeded our planetary boundaries. We can look around us and see how people feel about equity and cohesion, 
right? So we're, we're in a situation in our society when we have some significant issues at a planetary scale. And so uh, anyone on this planet, you know, if you're running a business, the success of your business depends on your ability to create your value in a way that um, actually does create value for the participants in that enterprise. And that does include not only the customers and the shareholders, but also the employees of the communities and, 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 and everything. So um, you can't sustain your success as a business if you aren't taking care of your customer. You can't sustain your success as a business if you're not taking care of your employees. You can't sustain your success as a business if the communities where you live and work don't like you, it doesn't work. So, so um, and by the way, it turns out that this idea of shared value, right? This idea of orienting your entire business around at the core addressing societal needs, that is the path to value creation. That is the path to managing risk. That is the path to strengthening the systems that you rely on. To, to generate your products and services and hire the people and so on. So um, I think that's the big insight of the last 10 years is, is people have finally realized, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about that value creation spreadsheet, right? That discounted cash flow projection. It all comes down to your assumptions about how do you sustain those numbers? And to sustain those numbers, you have to be giving life to the people that are involved in your enterprise. All right, Kathleen, well put, and actually a very good note to end on. And as we said at the outset, Ann and I have this tradition of looking back to look forward. And Kathleen, maybe we'll just begin with you, uh, just very briefly from each of us, maybe a minute apiece. Uh, what would you like listeners to most remember for what has been said today, for their own, their own leadership, their own presence in a community, their own, their own work with a company, or maybe in a uh, private community setting. Anyway, what point should really stand out as we break off in about five minutes here? I would just underscore this concept of convergence or shared value, meaning no matter what you do, whatever your role is in life, um, you are making a difference in your world um, and you can make a difference in your world at that intersection of social, environmental, and economic prosperity. And um, that's really the task of business, is to create wealth for society through business, to be at the table with government, with civil society, um, and to create shared value. So to create value for your business by addressing those very needs uh, that society is facing. Um, so, and, and that it doesn't matter what, uh, what job you have, or even if you have a job in your community, um, you're part of that. You can't you can't separate yourself from that uh, that uh, that undertaking. Well put. And final I, thought. I really, Kathleen stole the words out of my mouth, and that is, I was going to say shared value uh, rather than convergence. But I love that at the intersection of social, environmental, and economic. Mike. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'd add a, a personal note as follows. Um, the person who runs your firm, Doug McMillan, chief executive officer, has enormous impact on the world, uh, not to mention, of course, the, the company. But you've also said, so do you, and so do store managers and people on the floor. And it's such a reminder, really, of the philosophy that underlies this program, 
that uh, we need leadership from everywhere. You don't have to have a capital L in front of your name or maybe the adjective for what you're doing that you are leading or the leader. And I think we can see it in you in that uh, you play a very important leadership role in shaping where Walmart is going uh, with the community uh, and sustainability as you've argued as well. So I think that's it. Uh, we've got about 15 seconds each. Anne, would you like to add a final thought? And then Kathleen, you're gonna get the final word. <laughs> I just would like to wish Kathleen the very best in this enterprise <laughs> because it is so, so important for us as individuals and of course the planet. So Kathleen, a final thought from you. And then if you could add on, I'll just put the question in front of you right now. If somebody wants to learn more about what you're doing at the foundation or sustainability, how would they go about learning more about what you do? Well, I'll answer that one first. Um, I would just suggest you could take a look at uh, our website. There's a publication that we do every year called the ESG Report. That's probably worth taking a look yeah. at. It does a pretty decent job of laying out this philosophy and provides a lot of the uh, detail around the strategies and you know, what we think is working, where we have struggles, what the numbers are, the outputs, and so on. So that's worth taking a look at. And there's also a website for walmart.org, which is the foundation and our, and our uh, corporate giving as well there. So, and I guess, um, you know, in terms of, of last word for people, I mean, imagine a lot of people listening to this, you know, might be working in business or interested in business. And I would just um, encourage people to reflect, you know, if you consider what are the challenges that we face right now? We talked about COVID. We know about climate change. Increasingly, we know about what's happening with our ecosystems, and um, you know that's a that's a crisis that's as bigger bigger than than COVID. And uh, it's a slower moving one, but it's going to have outsized impact on all of us on the planet. And then, of course, the challenges we face around equity, racial equity, income inequality. You know, these are all very real things. And at times, it can feel overwhelming and, and you say, well, what, you know, what can I do? I'm just, I'm just one person. But I'd come back to this notion that um, everything's connected, everything's interrelated. And no matter what your role is, I think our opportunity is to find that synergy between wherever we stand in life, whatever role we have, and the things that we can do that will make a difference that, um, you know, support ourselves and whatever enterprise we're part of, business, nonprofit, what have you, but also then create value for others through the strengths that we can bring to bear. And I love what you said, Mike, which is, you know, impact isn't a function of scale or breadth necessarily. There's also a notion of depth. And, you know, you could be someone living in a small town, maybe you live alone and you just, you know, you manage your garden. That's important. Right? So no matter what you do, um, there's a beautiful leadership quality and opportunity there um, to make a difference with what you have for the, for the people um, and, and the planet around you. That's great. So thank you uh, so much. People with that. Kathleen, thank you for joining the program. I want to add thanks to Patty Hall, our esteemed producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. Thanks to you as well. I'm Mike Hussein. I've been here with Ann Greenhall. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back next week. Don't go too far away and stay safe. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.